Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We are, uh, we're starting and uh, we're ending our series at the cross today. And as we do, what we've been doing is as we inch our way towards the celebration of Easter, We've just been spending four weeks thinking about the cross, and um, we started with the conversation with the Messiah at the cross, and this was particularly crucial for us to understand because what we did is we identified some Old Testament passages written and prophesied prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus' even birth. And really what it proved to us is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the, the promised one that God had told the people of Israel that they would come a Savior who would rescue us from our sins. And in doing so, Jesus embodied that fulfillment. He is the Messiah at the cross. We talked about the thieves at the cross. And in doing so, we saw this amazing picture with one thief on one side and one on the other that even in his death, he gave the choice to believe in him. And between the two thieves, we saw one that ridiculed and mocked Jesus. We saw the other one put their faith and trust in Jesus. Last week, we looked at the six hours at the cross, and we took some time to unpack what it looked like for Jesus to endure the suffering of the cross. An incredible, incredible feat of uh, endurance, really out of love for us. And so this week we think about the King of the Jews at the cross. Today's Palm Sunday, and this is the feast that falls on the Sunday before Easter. And what we're celebrating on Palm Sunday is uh, the moment in which Jesus uh, had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This happened the week prior to his death and his burial and resurrection. And when he entered the city, they cried, Hosanna. Everyone cry that with me. One, two, three, Hosanna. And in doing so, they dropped these palm branches as a representation of Jesus coming in as king. He rose in, He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. This was prophesied hundreds of years ago in Zechariah in chapter 9. And this donkey was crucial in the prophecy because it symbolized that Jesus was coming in as a king of peace. Not a king of war. Entering the city on a donkey symbolized this arrival in peace rather than a war-waging king arriving on a horse. And so he came to give us peace. This is what we celebrate on Hosanna, that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he has come in peace to give us peace. This word peace in the New Testament is this word shalom. It's this, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Jewish culture, it's this word that represents wholeness or completeness. This peace that brings everything together, that makes everything that makes sense. It's a, a wholeness or a completeness that represents Jesus coming into our life, doing only what Jesus can do, and that is bringing completeness and wholeness to us. Jesus comes as the King. And we talked about when we say that Jesus is Messiah, what we we're also saying is that He is King. This idea of Messiah and being the Christ is, is one and the same as being the, the King, the long-awaited king of the Jews. It sounds noble and it sounds honorable, and yet it, all, it wasn't always used in this fashion. As we begin, we'll be in Matthew chapter 27, 
verse 35, where it says this, When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. What we use as a proclamation, what we use as our, as our victory cry on Palm Sunday, this was posted above his head as the criminal charge against Jesus. And so when they crucified him, this phrase, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews, it wasn't a victory cry. It wasn't a, a, a cry of Hosanna anymore that they were just doing a week ago. Now it was criminal charges. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It's interesting because when Jesus was brought before Pilate by the Sanhedrin, there were two, two charges laid against him. Number one was this, they charged Jesus with inciting civil unrest. It was Jesus, they said, that was causing the people to stir up as a crowd, as a mob. And if we didn't get this under control, Jesus was inciting this civil unrest. And if we couldn't control it, we wouldn't know what to expect next. And so this was one of the two charges. And yet the second charge was this, that he proclaimed himself as the Messiah, the Christ, the King. This was the charges brought by Pilate, by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the court of the day. Pilate asked him in the chapter earlier, is this really who you are? Look at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 62. This is what we read. The high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? In verse 63, Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah the Son of God. Jesus replied in verse 64, You have said so. In many ways, Pilate really crumbled under this, this three-pronged pressure that was upon him for Jesus' death. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish court system, and they definitely wanted Jesus to be killed. He wanted Jesus to be punished, and so that Sanhedrin would put up immense pressure on him. Herod, the Roman ruler, no doubt wanted Jesus eliminated. And yet, thirdly, the Jewish people themselves, much of the same crowd a week earlier who was crying, Hosanna, are now here in this other position. And they see what Jesus is being brought through. They see the charges against him. And they, too, wanted Jesus dead. Pilate knew, though, there was something different. There was something different about Jesus. He couldn't... He wasn't all bad. The accusations seemed to be baseless. And death at this point for Jesus would be an injustice. And so there was something within Pilate's own heart that, that caused him to recognize perhaps this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And so Pilate, perhaps in his confidence, perhaps he was out of his own ego, but for whatever reason, for clarity, he translated this phrase into three languages above the cross. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Pilate tra translated into Greek, which is interesting because Greek was the language of trade and commerce for the citizens. All the movers and shakers that allowed 
uh, the economy to move to and fro and to, uh, to survive. This was the language of the economy in Greek. It was also translated into Latin. This was significant so that every Roman citizen could read it for themselves as well. But then he also translated into Hebrew, which of course is the language of the Jewish people. And so here's Pilate, and perhaps in confidence, perhaps he's hedging his own bets, but for whatever reason takes this phrase and he puts it above Jesus' head as the written criminal charge. Perhaps this is Christianity's first sermon written by Pilate, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And if this was the first sermon, it came to mixed reviews. The Jews were insulted. He was not their king. Their king would come victorious. Their king would establish a kingdom. Their king, after all these hundreds of years, would establish a new way of life. The politics would be different. There would be a kingdom, and the Jewish people, the Jewish elite would be at the top of that kingdom helping to rule and reign. And so this guy that you're telling us is our king of the Jews, they were insulted. This was not going to fly with them. For the Romans, they were indifferent. Any threat he posed would be mute because he soon would be dead. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. I want you to think about Jesus, how he's represented in the Gospels. I want you to think about perhaps the images we see of Jesus in the Gospels. We, of course, see Jesus as a, as a baby. We see him as he's 12 years old in the temple. You remember the story there, and I think it's Luke. But we also see images of Jesus praying, do we not? Many times the Bible would be very clear that he would get up early and he would get away from all the people and he'd go and pray. He'd commune with his heavenly Father. We see images of Jesus teaching Boy, his first sermon in Matthew 5, he's on the Sermon of the Mount, and he's delivering a message, and he's teaching the people. There's instances where he's preaching. There's instances where he's uh, performing miracles. There's not a whole lot of images of Jesus singing. By my count, there's two images of Jesus singing. I think the first one is after Jesus' Last Supper with the disciples. If you remember that passage, they have the Last Supper, and then in almost every, every gospel it says they, they went up to the Mount of Olives and they sang a hymn together. Likely they sang the Halal hymns. These are Psalms 113 to Psalms 118. When we were doing our, our psalms and prayer during the week, during the beginning of the pandemic, and we got to these psalms, it was really interesting to learn that these were the psalms that were sung on the first and the last day of Passover, Psalms 113 to 118. And I'd encourage you this week as a family, I'd read one every single day this week. And look for the imagery, look for what they were singing, but these were the songs likely that they sung that night after the first supper. Jesus sang a hymn, with the disciples. I wonder what kind of voice Jesus had. You ever think about it? Was it a deep baritone voice? Was it, was it like Alvin and the Chipmunks? Was it like my imagination gets away from me when I think about what his voice would have sounded like. But make no mistake, he sang with the disciples, it says, in worship, in adoration, looking forward to the week that would come. I want you to think about Jesus singing with the disciples after the Last Supper with the 
with them. But the other instance we see of Jesus singing is very interesting. It's really at the cross. Now, we may miss this because we often view the following as three separate phrases, but you know these phrases. The first one is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the opening line of Psalm 22, which we will unpack in just a moment. Halfway through his time on the cross, or somewhat halfway through, there are the words that Jesus speaks where he says, I thirst. We're going to see that unpacked in Psalm 22 in just a moment. And then right at the end, we see Jesus cry those words, it is finished. And the way we read the gospel narratives, uh, we see those as three separate phrases. But many historians and theologians believe that when he said those three phrases, they were part of this song in Psalm 22. And just like if I just sang the opening words of Amazing Grace, you would recognize the melody, you would recognize the tune, and in your head, you would finish the verse, and you would even recite the rest of the verses in your own mind. And just in that way where I sung two words of a song, it was as if I sang the whole song. Many theologians believe that when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he cried, I thirst. When he cried, it is finished. It was part of this song he sang at the cross. Psalm 22 and Psalm 23 and 24 are often sung together. Psalm 23, you know, as the shepherd's song, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 24 is known as the psalm of the crown. But Psalm 22, when they're all sung together, Psalm 22 is the psalm of the cross. I want you to open your Bibles. The verses are not going to come on the screen, and they're not going to come on the screen for a reason. I want you to see them in your own Bibles. And so if you're at home, I'd encourage you to grab a Bible and look at Psalm 22. We're going to read the whole psalm, and I'm going to unpack a little bit as we read through it. But as we read through it, I want you to understand that Psalm 22 begins as a climb up the mountain of this tribulation. But boy, it ends with a cheer and a view from the top of triumph. And so this morning, we want to hear the lyrics of this song that Jesus sang at the cross. Psalm 22. It starts this way, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? And right away, we're struck with the words, my God, my God, because instantly we recognize that someone who knows God, someone who has relationship with God, all of a sudden has been forsaken by God. And this doesn't feel right. This doesn't seem right that someone that could have relationship with God would be forsaken by God. He goes on to say, why have you forsaken me? Understand when Jesus is on the cross and he says these words, he's already gone through betrayal. Judas has already betrayed him. Peter has already denied him. And here he is at the cross and he says, why have you forsaken me? Judas, I understand. Peter, I understand. But God, why have you forsaken me? He says, why are you so far 
from saving me. There's this distance, there's this pain that Jesus experiences from God. Why are you so far? How many of you have heard yourself cry that aloud? We come to verse 2. My God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. By night, but I find no rest. You think about Jesus leading up to the cross, and you think about that restless night in the Garden of Gethsemane. These are prophetic words written by David hundreds of years ago, but when Jesus speaks them now at the cross, he is living these words. I find no rest. Verse 3, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Jesus is, 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 is uh, remembering over and over how the children of Israel put their trust in God Almighty and the, all the times that God always showed up for his children. We come to verse 6. And it says this, I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by everyone and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. And this is what they say. He trusts in the Lord's, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. These are the words of Jesus spoken on the cross. And it looks like, it, or it almost uh, reminds us of, uh, of Isaiah 53 that we looked at last week. When he says these words, I am a worm and I'm not a man. I'm scorned by everyone, despised by the people, all who see me mock me. In Isaiah 53, we saw the imagery of what it looked like for Jesus to be on the cross. And then he says they hurl their insults. They, they shake their heads and they say, man, if he could really save himself, let him do it. Aren't these reminiscent of the words in the gospel by those who are mocking him? The thief even. We come to verse 9 and it says this, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. This is a psalm of, of worship in the midst of this waiting. We come to verse 11, and he says this, Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. He says, do not be far from me. Again, verse 1, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now he says in verse 2, you don't answer my prayer. And now here in verse 11, do not be far from me because trouble is near. In other words, death is imminent. It's right around the corner. We come to verse 12 and he says this, many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. Here the, 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 the psalm of David is using poetic license. There's an artistry here that's happening. He doesn't literally mean that there are bulls that are surrounding him. It doesn't mean that there are literal lions that is tearing his prey. But what he is saying is this. I am surrounded by predators. I'm surrounded in this moment by animals who would seek to devour me, who would seek to pull my flesh apart. This is what he's describing. In verse 14, he says this, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. 
my heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. I want you to look at verse 15 and look at the imagery he paints in verse 15. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Do you remember the words of Jesus when he said, I thirst? Many theologians believe he was at this point of the song when he sung these words that my mouth is dried up now, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, I thirst. We come to verse 16 through 18, and there's an incredible image of the cross here. He says this, dogs surround me. Again, just like the bulls, just like the lions, it's an artistic uh, rendering of what's happening. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me, and they pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Again, what we said earlier is this is a picture of the climb of the, the trial and tribulation of what Jesus went on to on the cross. And here we see some, some vivid descriptions that are not, not mistaken in any way to be Jesus on the cross as, as, as he's surrounded as there's villains all around him, as his bones are on display, as people stare, as they gloat, as they mock, they divide my clothes among them. That was prophesied, and then it happened, and they cast lots for my garment. We read that in Matthew 27. And then all of a sudden, in verse 19, there is a shift. And when you read this out loud, there is a shift in the tone. There's a shift in the emotion because what began as this climb up the mountain of tribulation, now we get to the top and now there is a cheer with the view from the top of triumph. Listen, verse 19. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Every one of us has had a but you, Lord where everything around us seems to be going, um, thank you. The words I was going to use are not appropriate probably <laughs> for church. When your week is just going the wrong way, sideways, Linda said, and all of a sudden you are feel like you're surrounded, you feel like uh, everyone's uh, surrounding you, that you are, uh, you are the prey and every situa situation around you is the predator where uh, you are on display, where people look at you and your faith and they say, where is your God now? You can't pay your bills. Where is your God now? Your marriage is falling apart. Where is your God now? Your children are, <laughs> look at your children. Where is your God now? And they gloat and they mock you. And every one of us, if we've been Christians for any length of time, have gone through periods of our life where there is tribal, tri uh, tribulation, there is trial, there is trouble in our lives, and yet we come to verse 19 in our lives and we say, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly. Come quickly. Look at verse 20. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of the lion. 
save me from the horns of the wild oxen. The tide is turning and you can feel it. And here, as David penned these prophetic words hundreds of years before Jesus would be on the cross, Jesus now is thinking these words. He's no doubt embracing the truth of the first verse where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No doubt he is enduring the physical uh, the physical angst of being on the cross, and he says, I thirst. And yet in this moment, you can see the psalmist turn, the, the, the turning of the tide, because there's a moment where we recognize where our strength comes, and it comes from heaven. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Verse 22, and I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. Keep in mind, nothing has shifted for this psalmist. Nothing has shifted in the middle of Psalm 22 other than his attention. It's a powerful lesson for us that while his attention was around his temporary surroundings, he acknowledged them and he described, it feels like I am alone. It feels like you have forsaken me. It feels like I pray all day and there's no response from heaven. It feels like I'm all on my own. It feels like there's predators around me. It feels like they're staring. It feels like they are mocking me. This is what it feels like. And then his attention shifts. But you, Lord... Do not be far from me, because you are my strength. And as soon as his attention lifted up past his temporary surroundings into heaven, into the source of strength, this is where verse 22 happens. I declare your name to my people, and in the assembly I will praise you. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. Verse 24, here's the promise. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. Well, on the other side of grave, on the other side of the death, there is victory and there's triumph. And here, there's a, there's a little foreshadowing of that where he says he hasn't hidden his face, but he has listened to his help for his cry for help. Look at verse 25 together. He says this, From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied, and those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. We come to verse 27, and there's this amazing picture. I want you to think about uh, the imagery that's being painted here in verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nation will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nation. Why? Because this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And here's the picture from the ends of the earth. All the families will be gathered and they will praise the name of Jesus. Philippians 20. Two says that, uh, that every knee will bow and recognize that Jesus is Lord. We come to verse 29 and it says this. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. And those who cannot keep, them, keep themselves alive. Verse 30, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. And this is how the Psalm 22 ends. 
they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. There's a finality with this last phrase, he has done it. I want you to think of Jesus on the cross and, 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 and in step with the words, it is finished, is this phrase, he has done it. Perhaps the greatest song ever sung, picture the Roman soldiers nailing him to the cross and here Jesus recites, if not sings and embodies the very fulfillment of biblical prophecy here in Psalm 22. And to the degree that even the Roman soldiers went from maiming and mocking him to marveling and honoring him saying, truly this was the Son of God. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. It is finished. Uh, what's interesting is this, this phrase, he has done it, is a Hebrew word called kelah. And it's, and it's the word that would be uttered by the temple priests after all the sacrificial lambs had been slaughtered. So on the day of atonement when they would come and the lambs would be brought to the priest and they would go through and they would sacrifice the lambs, when all the lambs would be complete, and they, all of them would be slaughtered, and the, and the uh, sacrifices had been prepared, they would cry these words, Kalah, he has done it. And when Jesus sang the victory song in, in, in the Gospels, when we hear him say, it is finished, the world resonated with the words. The earth quaked, we remember. We saw that the curtain tore from the top bottom. Darkness fell and sin had been defeated by Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the King of the Jews. I want to show you a few verses on how Hebrews represents what happens here. He says it this way, the writer of Hebrews. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. And then look at verse 12. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all and secured our redemption forever. Amen? Verse 19 says it this way, So dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. This is the good news. This is the gospel, and this is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, that, that Jesus is the King of the Jews, and as King, he boldly entered and gave us a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. This is why we make no apologies for making a big deal about celebrating Easter Sunday because we want to celebrate the victory that has been won, that death has been defeated, and that Jesus is King. The greatest song ever sung in the history of the world, sung by Jesus, declaring victory over sin, and this is how the song ended. They will proclaim His righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, He has done it. What it what it symbolizes to us at the end of Hebrews is this. Look at verse 20 again. 
By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. That most holy place represents fellowship and presence with God. And because of what Jesus did, the king of the Jews on the cross, when he died, when he was buried, and when he was resurrected, and the veil tore, and all of a sudden we had direct access to God, this is what the psalmist is alluding to when they said, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. This is the gospel. We're going to end in Romans 10 this morning. Because the gospel does not end with us. Church, the gospel does not end with us. Everything that Jesus did on the cross, everything that he endured, everything that he fulfilled being the Messiah at the cross, when we thought about the thieves and what he, uh, what he gave them opportunity, the most blessed opportunity was to have a choice in believing. When we think about the six hours of the cross and everything that he endured, and we think about the king of the Jews enduring a week of triumph coming in as king of kings, with shouts of Hosanna and palm branches representing his kingdom, that week ended with him dying on a cross. Why would he go to that extent? It was because of the gospel, but the gospel does not end with us. Look at Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. Let's all read this verse together. Ready, begin. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? I want you to look at the next verse. Because we love this verse. But here's the next verse. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they haven't heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Everyone say how. One, two, three. You. Thanks for asking. It's you. The gospel doesn't end with you. Our responsibility, our obligation, our mandate, if we truly believe verse 13, if we absolutely believe verse 13, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, if this is something we truly believe and that we embrace with the hearts, it means we will answer the question in verse 14 with an upraised hand and said, I, I will serve the King of Kings. I will serve the King of Kings who was the Messiah, the Christ, and the one who saved my life. And in doing so, I will tell someone else about Jesus. This is the time, this is the reason, this is the place. Jesus is king. How, how can they call on the one they have not believed? How can they believe in the one of whom they haven't heard? And how can they hear without someone? Without someone. I'm here to remind you this morning, church family, You are the someone in someone's life. So who is it in your life? It might be the coworker you work with. The one you spend 40 or 50 of the best or not so best hours of your week working alongside someone and they just need an invitation to hear about someone who gives meaning to this life someone who puts this life in perspective, someone who promises the next life, you are that someone 
It might be your neighbor. It might be the person across the street or next to you that you maybe know each other's first names and not much more, and, and they see the, the... How many of you know your neighbors know exactly what you do every week? They see the rhythm of your cars. Some of you a little bit too much maybe, huh? They see the rhythm of your cars, and they know every Sunday morning you're leaving or every and Sunday afternoon you come back. Like, you could be the person to them. It might be a daughter or son you no longer speak to that you pray for every single day, though. It might be a grandson that calls on the holidays, and, and maybe you call him on this holiday, on this Easter. You are the someone to someone. In church family, if we believe Romans 10.13, we are obligated to embrace Romans 10.14. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone? Without someone. Let's bow for a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the truth in Romans 10.13 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because, Lord, frankly, I'm grateful because everyone included me. Everyone included me. Thank you, Father, for including me in the gospel. Thank you that when I was eight years old and I called on the name of the Lord that you saved me, that you gave meaning to my life and purpose to my days, Thank you that uh, my family was able to hear the gospel. Thank you that Libby's family was able to hear the gospel. Thank you that our church family, at some point in our lives, some point in our lives, someone told us about the gospel. And maybe we walked into a church by ourselves. Maybe we got invited to a service. Maybe someone just kept on praying for us. Maybe someone showed up at the hospital. But at some point someone showed up in our life. And Father, I'm so grateful that we are filled, filled in this church space. We're filled with people online, full of people who are reached by someone. So I, I, I want to thank you for uh, Romans 10, 13. Yet, Father, as we consider this week, a week where people are so sensitive and maybe willing to hear about Jesus and willing to hear about an Easter Sunday and willing to hear what a church might offer their children. Father, I pray that you would give us the, the boldness and the courage to be the someone for someone else. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone? Father, in my heart of hearts, I believe that every one of us has someone we can tell about the gospel this week, about what you have done in our lives, about the way we have meaning to our life, about the way you have sheltered us, the way you have protected us, the way that you have provided for us, and the way that you have given us eternal life. I believe every one of us has a someone we could share that with. So I'm praying for a week of boldness. I'm thinking about this crowd in first century Jerusalem 
And as they saw Jesus riding on a donkey, they identified him as Messiah. They identified him as Christ and as king of their life. And they cried out, Hosanna. So, Lord, I'm praying that this week would be a Hosanna week, that we would shout Hosanna in our hearts and in our lives, in our conversations, so that every conversation that we have would be filled with the expectancy of this, of this truth that Jesus is king, not only the king of the Jews, but he's king of my life. And as king of our lives, Father, that we would obey and submit and yield our lives to you and that we would invite others to you. I want you to stay with your heads bowed for just a moment. And and uh, boy, if you've never placed your trust in God, I can't think of a better week. I can't think of a better time than right now to, to proclaim your faith in who Jesus is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so to have this relationship with God takes accepting Jesus for his words. And he said everyone who would call on the name of the Lord would be saved. So if you're sitting at home right now and you're watching online or maybe in this building and you are, you are coming to the place in your life where you've recognized you've never put your faith and trust in him, I would urge you for today to be the day of salvation. That today you in your heart would cry Hosanna and in your life you would cry, save me Lord, and he would do so. In a few moments we're going to take communion and there's stations uh, all around the auditorium. And so uh, what we would ask you to do is during communion is just to make your way to one of the stations. One of our masked and gloved attendants will give you your communion cups and you can take them back to your seat and take a moment for yourself to remember the sacrifice. And if you're here today and you've never accepted Christ, I would urge you, if you are doing that right now, you say, Daniel, I'm trusting him right now, perhaps for the very first time. Well, we'd invite you to take communion with us, but we'd invite you also to let someone know of that decision. If you're watching online, maybe you want to send us a message so we can reach out to you, and we'd love to give you a Bible. We'd like to gift you some things that will help you in this new walk with Jesus. If you're here today, I'd encourage you to Reach out to the person you came to church with and said, hey, I am, I'm saying Hosanna for the first time. I'm saying he's the king of my life for the very first time. We want to rejoice with you and help you in this, this walk with Jesus. Believer, if you're here and you're part of our church family and this is, this is all so um, encouraging because you have accepted Christ you're a member of this church family or maybe you've been attending for a while, maybe you're watching online and you know Christ as your Savior. I am bloody, I am, I am, uh, I am pleading with you to let your life be the someone for someone else's life. May this be the week that all of us rise up and bring people to Christ. May this be the week that we shout Hosanna, not just with our words, but with our lives. And not with just our words that he's king, but with our life, he is king, he is Lord. So we submit and we yield and we rejoice as a child of the king. Heavenly Father, we give you this service. We give you this time. Thank you for scripture that encourages us. Thank you for the Gospels. Thank you the way the Old Testament ties with the New Testament. Thank you that we got to see your words in Psalm 22. 
And Father, may this be the day that we proclaim you king of our life. As we prepare to sing these words, as we prepare to look forward to what it will be like in heaven, Father, we ask that this time would be sacred, meaningful, and significant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus is king of our life. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.